The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. As we start a new year, I sat down with a new staff member here at the museum, our curator, Matthew Burchette. If you are a museum member, you may have read about him in our recent Aloft member magazine, or maybe you even met him at the Coffee with the Curator member event. But even if you've chatted with Matthew, it's probably nothing like the conversation he and I had. Matthew sat down with me to chat about his background, but we also dived deep into some of the philosophical questions concerning museums, like how do we decide what stories to tell? How might our museum and museums in general help rebuild trust in a fractured nation? What do museums do with artifacts that they've had for years, but now fall outside the scope of their collection? How do they handle that question? So get ready for a real behind-the-scenes chat about what drives museums and what museums hope to accomplish in the new decade and beyond. So let's take a few steps back Okay. for people who, who might not know what a curator is and what your role is in the museum. Can you give a, a basic overview of what a curator does in a museum and what you do for ours? Curators are kind of an odd duck. You know, depending upon where you work, you're going to do a lot of different things. When I was with Wings Over the Rockies, the curator position was really more of an exhibit designer. I didn't spend a lot of time with the collection other than the aircraft out there on the floor, designing exhibits, um, that kind of thing. Whereas other museums, I mean, you can be knee-deep in the collection on a day-to-day basis, Um, and then there's here where it's a little bit of everything. I'm sitting with you here today doing a podcast. Later today, I have an exhibits meeting on one of the new exhibits that we're working on here at the museum. And then just earlier this morning, I'm writing a piece for Ireloft magazine on the Aleutian Islands campaign. And then later this week, we're going to be meeting about our collections policy. So here, I think, is a great example of what a curator does. You do a little bit of everything. And one of the things that I like to kind of jokingly say is that, you know, I finally got all this worthless cocktail party knowledge (laughs) out of my brain and found a place that would pay me for it. So I'm sure people who are listening to this have seen some of the memes on Facebook that are going around right now, at least in my group kind of this funny little thing about here's what normal people talk about and then me as a historian here's what I talk about and it's just like (laughs) them vomiting all this information you know on the poor person when they probably don't care it's like I finally found a job where I can do that (laughs) it's great (laughs) yeah and you had an interesting journey to this I think one of my favorite parts of your background is that you started out in graphic design Felt that wasn't a viable career, so went for the even more lucrative job of <laughs> <That's true>. working in museums. 
Yeah, apparently I don't want to make money in my life. <laughs> but you know what? It's 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 great. Um, that is true, though. I did start out. My undergraduate degree from Baylor University was actually in the interior design program. Went ahead and graduated because that's what you do after you spent that kind of money. Worked for a year as a graphic artist there in Waco, Texas, still thinking, man, I really should have done something with history. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get a master's degree. And so I went back and started looking through the catalog and I see museum studies. And so I start looking at that and I'm like, wow, that's really cool. That's like hands-on history, which is even better. I think one of the things, going back to your original question of what a curator does, I think I'm one of the the really odd curators in that I'm not a specialist in one area. Obviously, aviation is definitely a specialty, but I have worked in the design background. I've worked in exhibit design background, and I have a, a museum studies background and a kind of jack-of-all-trades, master of none, but pretty good at most of them. <laughs> We're getting a little inside baseball on the inside stuff, which I think is interesting. And I don't know if a lot of our listeners have been exposed to that, but the role of a, a small museum curator is very different than, say, the Smithsonian, where they've got oh my gosh, uh, how, uh, probably over a hundred curators. I, I wouldn't say a hundred at any given museum, but they get very Smithsonian specialized. is nuts. If you start going through just seeing, you know, which would be fun, right? You know, because then you could really drill down into your area of expertise. And for me, it would be European theater of operations, aviation, and World War II. Right. You know, that's where I really get excited. Right. Um, you know, that's not going to happen here. And that's not going to happen at, at probably any other museum in the United States other than the Smithsonian, just because they're so big. Um, but that's how 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 far you can drill down. Right. It's it's amazing. You mentioned earlier the Aleutian Island campaigns in World War II. Mm -hmm. That's a side of history that we haven't heard a lot about. That's true. I'm curious what you consider museums' roles in bringing those kinds of stories to light. And, and I'll kind of couch this question for background for a lot of listeners is museums can find themselves in tricky situations. Uh, an example that we use a lot, speaking of the Smithsonian, is their discussion of the Enola Gay. Uh, if you haven't heard of this, I know you have, Matthew, but if listeners haven't heard of this, look up uh, the Enola Gay and the interpretation around it at the National Air and Space Museum. I mean, a whole book was written about just <laughs> this exhibit about dropping the atomic bomb That's and the Enola right. Gay's role in it. So it's, it's really tricky for museums to tell stories that aren't expected. Maybe that's a, a way to put it. What do you see museums' roles and obligations in getting these kinds of lesser-known stories out there? You know, museums are, are changing dramatically. One of the words that, that we used even as far back as the mid-'90s when I was in grad school was edutainment. Um, and Epcot. I, yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't see that changing. In fact, I see that becoming even more of an issue for museums. Um, people these days, the general public is very used to being entertained, whether that's on your cell phone, your iPad, um, your television, your car radio. You're constantly being barraged with information, and I am just as bad as everyone else. So museums are trying desperately to find a way to get these important stories out 
but in a way that's going to engage their audience. I'm kind of twisting your, your question a little sure, bit there. Go for it. But take, for example, the Aleutian Islands that, that we referred to. That is a part of the uh, uh, Second World War that a lot of people just don't know about. You know, it was in the far reaches of Alaska. It wasn't sexy. It wasn't in it was Britain. Cold. <laughs> it was cold. It was remote. There was not a lot of action. It didn't create the kind of heroes that some of these other battles did. You have heroes from the Battle of Britain. You have heroes from the uh, bomber campaign over Europe. You have heroes in the Pacific, Midway, Guadalcanal. It, the list goes on and on and on, but that really didn't happen in the Aleutian, so there was nothing to really grab the public's attention like there was elsewhere. Let's put it this way. There were no headlines that really got generated by that particular campaign. So how do you go about telling that story and making it compelling to people and make them realize that this was an important part of the campaign? People did die in that campaign. Um, and without it, the war could have dramatically changed. Um, so one of the things that we're doing here is that we are going to put a face to that campaign. We have some interesting collections here of individuals who fought and died, sadly, in the Aleutian Islands. And so that's one of the things that we're going to be putting into what we're calling the refresh of the personal courage wing for the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. So to that end, I am writing a piece for the Aloft magazine that will just kind of give people a general 30,000-foot overview of the, the Aleutian campaign and hopefully bring them up to speed so that when they attend the grand opening, or reopening, I guess you could call it, of the PCW, the uh, Personal Courage Wing, that they will kind of at least have a foothold on what they're seeing. Because beyond the soldiers, too, people were living there. Oh, absolutely. You've got uh, Native Americans and Inuit tribe and just all sorts of people up there that that were also uh, victims of the Japanese aggression, indiscriminate bombing and that kind of thing. It's just, and, and those kind of stories are rarely told. Mm -hmm. And we're lucky to have a collection to back it up because that's another piece that I've learned. I don't come from a museum background, is that we would love to tell any story out there, but if we don't have a picture, an artifact, something to back it up, it becomes a wall of text. That's and true. And then, to your edutainment point, that's not interesting <laughs> That's to not inter interesting at all. Um, the other thing that we're going to do here is, is going back to that edutainment thing, is that we are making use of more video and more audio than is in there now. Um, because let's face it, people aren't going to read you know, five or six paragraphs of text. Um, even as a museum geek and a history geek, I just recently came back from the World War II Museum in New Orleans, and I didn't read everything in there. You know, and you were there for two days, right? I was there for two days, which, yeah. by the way, is still not enough. <laughs> um, you could easily do three or four. But I would see something that would catch my eye, and I would go, and I would read, and then move on. It's interesting. So, you know, at the same time, you want to get these stories out, and it's especially hard for the people who are researching and writing 
because you're finding such amazing information on these individuals that you want to tell their entire story, but their entire story could be three pages long. So you've got to distill that down to just the high points. And it just, it kills me because I know so much about some of these, these guys and gals that I want everybody to know the same thing I do, but I just know that not everybody's a history geek. You, you talked a little bit about the shifting world in a world and in a country that feels very tense, very mm, um, mm-hmm. mistrusting <clears throat> in a way. How can museums be a place, a place for good, a force for good in all of this? That's a good question. One of the things that museums need to do is they need to tackle the, the, the hard questions and they need to tackle them head on. They need to just realize that they are telling a story and that, that story is important. The outcome of said story may not be what people want to hear. Um, the subject of the story may not be what people want to hear, but it is history and it is something that needs to be told and needs to be remembered. And, and in a world where museums have somehow held on to our position of trust in the community, I mean, we're, we're pretty well positioned for that kind of thing. I think nothing is more trustworthy than a museum or PBS. <laughs> <laughs> As a curator, you're in a way a community-sanctioned hoarder. <laughs> That's true. So what it's are, great. What are you hoping will come through our door? What are we looking for to augment our collection right now? You know, right now we don't have, oddly enough a lot of Korean War era artifacts. Talk about a forgotten war. That's the other forgotten war. So anything Korean related would be interesting to look at. I think we're going to need to start focusing more on newer conflicts and innovations. Certainly we're taking a hard look at new space because that is big, 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 and is only going to get bigger, and it's probably going to get much bigger very quickly. So those three things are are important. You know, aircraft are always great, but we're running out of room, (laughs) you know? So we have to be very cognizant of of what we collect when it gets bigger than about a bread box. (laughs) So if you have, if you, listener, you or somebody you know has artifacts related to Korean War, New Space, or any of those topics... And there's a procedure for contacting the museum, and you can find that in the show notes. Excellent. Finally, we're in a new year. 2020 is just off the ground. Oof. New year, new curator. What are you looking forward to? What are some highlights you're, you're hoping to see in this year? From a, uh, <laughs> from a sheerly personal standpoint, I'll be ready to have all my stuff delivered from Denver. <laughs> I've been living in Airbnbs for the last three months. I'm ready to just have my own kitchen knives, which is kind of silly, but... N- in an Airbnb, the kitchen knives are never sharp. <laughs> so I will be glad to have my own set of kitchen knives back. And then from a work perspective, one of the big things we're going to be working on here is tackling our scope of collections. What are we collecting here at the Museum of Flight and why? That's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to get me right down here in the basement with you guys looking at what we have now looking at what we don't have and what should we be collecting and why and what are things that we have that we may not really need to have that's a that's going to be a fun one is deaccessioning um and if our listeners don't know what deaccessioning is it's basically getting rid of artifacts that a museum has held that that are either in so bad a shape that they have no value anymore or that they could begin to 
cause problems within other artifacts in the collection. Or in the case of this museum and the other museum that I used to work at, Wings, in the early days, you would just collect anything. You know, sure, we'll take it. And then you Or you someone's back, whole estate. An entire yeah. estate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and now you look back and you go, okay, we really don't need this guy's blender. It has <laughs> nothing to do with aviation. So you begin to get rid of things to, to make space to bring in more appropriate things. Or you have, a, take, for example, a pair of flight gloves that uh, we're going to use a, a very technical term now that are crunchy. and then probably need to either go back into storage or maybe go on to another museum who would love to have a a set of crunchy gloves but we don't need them because we got a better set right we're we're in a position of privilege that we have a lot of people offering uniform parts especially and and things so we, we are able to use the best of what's out there it's a good problem to have yeah well matthew thank you so much for your time oh you bet and here's to a great year ahead I am looking forward to it. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. Are you interested in donating an artifact to the museum? Check out this episode's show notes for a link to get the process started. And don't underestimate your stuff, by the way. We don't take everything. Certainly not. We have things that we collect and things that we don't but i've spoken with people airline employees or veterans or or people who just don't realize that an album of photos for example which to them might seem like nothing special might really be a treasure trove for a museum like us so if you want us to take a look at an artifact to see if it's a good fit for our collection check out those show notes for a link And I'll make a quick important note that we do not assign value to objects that we evaluate. So if you're looking to get something appraised, you'll want to look elsewhere. But if you're looking to find a place where your story can be preserved for generations to come, then consider a museum like the Museum of Flight. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can contact the show at podcast at museumofflight.org. And until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks.